One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront, analyse NATO's involvement in Estonia, and we hear from Dr. Sasha Dovzik about her recent travels around eastern Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 25th of May, one year and 90 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, defence editor, Danielle Sheridan, foreign reporter, Genevieve Hall-Allen, and our guest is Dr. Sasha Dovzik, special projects creator at the Ukrainian Institute in London and associate lecturer in Ukrainian at UCL's School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David, and welcome back to our listeners around the world. The big news this morning is that according to the leader of Wagner Forces, Yevgeny Pogozhin, the process of their withdrawal from the frontline city of Bakhmut has commenced. The founder of the Mercenary Force, in a video on his Telegram channel, has said that they're leaving Bakhmut in organised units. It's a rather stilted video which depicts him walking around amidst the city ruins and conversing with his fighters. Now, Previously, of course, he's declared that his fighters have successfully taken control of the city after this months-long campaign, over nine months to capture it. And we saw on Sunday Putin praising Russia's triumph in the eastern city overall, its sort of victory there, although, of course, the Ukrainians contest that. But the previous announcement that Prigozhin made was that mercenary fighters are would would leave between May 25th and June the 1st and it does appear that that is what is happening now prior to that announcement this morning we had another one from Prigozhin yesterday which was pretty extraordinary i mean i say an announcement really it was an outburst another one of those and he said that russia could face a revolution unless the country's elite got serious about fighting the war and stopped 
holidaying. So he warned that if ordinary Russians continue to get their children back in zinc coffins while the elite shook their backsides in the sun, that's a direct quote, will lose the war and face turmoil not seen since the revolutions of 1917 when Russia overthrew the Tsar and the civil war broke out. He went on, this divide can end as in 1917 with a revolution. First, the soldiers will stand up and after that, their loved ones will rise up. There are already tens of thousands of them, relatives of those killed, and there will probably be hundreds of thousands and we cannot avoid that. And I'm going to replace a certain swear word with one of Dom's in a second. We're in such a condition that we could melon farming lose Russia. That is the main problem. We need to impose martial law. Now, the tensions, of course, between Wagner and the Kremlin have exploded in recent months. So it's not necessarily surprising when we see these kind of remarks. But even for Prigozhin, this is pretty incendiary stuff. Remember that when a revolution comes to Russia, it is usually devastating. Violence erupts and or Russia loses vast waves of territory. It's a continual existential fear. And evidently there is a narrative forming amongst the hardline pro-war lobby that the Russian forces have been betrayed by a corrupt elite in this war. And if that festers and there is a devastating defeat for Russia in the counteroffensives to come, then it is easy to see these people forming a makeshift alliance opposed to the regime. And that could be very powerful, which could explain some of the speculation that the Kremlin tried to frighten Prigozhin by the killing of one of his most vocal supporters in that statue explosion several months ago. Although that could equally have been Ukraine. We just don't know. Now, interestingly, Prigozhin also said that Ukraine is preparing a counteroffensive with the aim of pushing Russia forces back to its borders before the legal annexation of Crimea in 2014 by seeking to encircle Bakhmut and attacking Crimea directly. Now, this is indeed speculated, Though there is also a growing frustration and a concern, I think it's fair to say, that this highly anticipated counteroffensive from Ukraine is yet to materialise. And I think it's fair to say that President Zelensky's office is aware of this concern, is perhaps trying to lower expectations or mislead the enemy regarding their intentions. Quite an interesting tweet put out this morning by uh, Mr. Podolyak, the well-known advisor to President Zelensky. And he said that about the counteroffensive, without further questions, and then he lists in the tweet, which I'll quote from now, this is not a single event that will begin at a specific hour of a specific day with a solemn cutting of the red ribbon. These are dozens of different actions to destroy the Russian occupation forces in different directions, which have already been taking place yesterday, are taking place today and will continue tomorrow. Intensive destruction of enemy logistics is also a counteroffensive. Now, this may be true, but for right or wrong, the world is waiting. And for reasons discussed on this podcast in the past, Without some tangible successes in the coming months, there are dangers for Ukraine in the political sphere, which are well known. And I won't 
go over again now. But that is, of course, something that we need to pay attention to here. And I think, as I say, the world is watching. But turning to other parts of the battlefield, the Crimean city of Sevastopol was targeted in an overnight drone strike last night. That's according to Russian-installed officials there. The city governor wrote on Telegram this morning that the Black Sea fleet shot down two UAVs and several others were jammed and downed. Now, we can't independently verify this. Another interesting development is that we learned yesterday that Russia claims it fended off a Ukrainian attack on one of its warships in Turkish waters with unmanned vessels, which would be another alleged sabotage attack Moscow has blamed on Kyiv recently. They said the armed forces of Ukraine made an unsuccessful attempt to attack the Ivan Kurz ship of the Black Sea Fleet with three unmanned speedboats effectively drone speedboats is the term that's often used. That came from the Defence Ministry. And it said that this Russian vessel had been tasked with guarding pipeline infrastructure in Turkish economic waters. Now, that's interesting because if this, we don't know if it's true, but evidently there are political consequences if that is true. And it would be an attempt to alarm Turkey, I think, as to the violence that could be erupting in its own economic sphere thereby, from a Russian perspective, hoping to keep Turkey more sympathetic to the Kremlin's narrative that Ukraine wants to escalate this war. Now, speaking of drones, I'll discuss later an update on the drone attack on the Kremlin. But I will end this segment with further news of a mysterious fire in Moscow. So Russian state news agencies reported last night that a fire broke out in the Russian Ministry of Defence building in central Moscow. But then they backtracked and said that the emergency services went there and denied that there was a fire. So Taz reported that the Ministry of Emergency Situations had arrived at the building and discovered that there was none there. The fact of the fire has not been confirmed since no fire was detected upon arrival of fire departments. There was also no information of any victims. But this seems rather strange given that footage on social media that we've seen this morning appears to show smoke billowing near the building. So what is going on? I mean, we just don't know. But what matters here is that there seem to be so many instances like this erupting at the moment. And we know that sabotage is taking place in the main Russian cities. And perhaps this is an example of the Kremlin trying to shut down reporting of such activity or activity that could be perceived as such or perhaps it's not related to the war at all. But the fact that we're talking about it is revealing in and of itself, I think. And it shows how eyes are increasingly on incidents in Russia itself as this war develops. But I'll take a deep breath there, David. Danielle, you've just got back from a reporting trip to Estonia. Where were you and what did you see? Hi, thanks for having me on. Yes, so I was in Tallinn where I met with Kadja Kallas, the Prime Minister of Estonia. And it was really brilliant to sit down and interview her. The interview is in today's paper and online. To talk all about how Estonia is preparing to deter any threat from Russia. Now, Estonia shares a a massive border with Russia. It's it's 183 miles long and it lived under occupation after the Second World War for 50 years, basically until the Soviet Union collapsed. And for Estonians, it is a very real threat that Russia could invade. They've watched with horror what's happened in Ukraine and it, to them, seems only too real a possibility that the war could spill into their country. It was fascinating talking to 
Kadja because she said at the Munich Security Conference last year, I think about a week before Russia did actually invade Ukraine, the event was held and that a very senior spook basically told her that she was kind of silly to think that Russia would invade Ukraine. And she said, well, you know what, I really hope you're right, because from where I'm sitting, that's exactly what it looks like is going to happen. And lo and behold, her worst fears were realised. And so it's with that mindset that she is taking defence very seriously in her country. She has said that she wants to raise the nation's GDP spend on defence to 3%. And at the NATO summit in Villainous in July, she's going to be pushing for other NATO members to do that. Obviously, Rishi Sunak has not committed to 3%. He said it was an arbitrary target. Yet, Kadja and other Baltic nations are going to be arguing exactly why they should be pushing for that increase in defence spend. She also spoke about the importance of British troops training and exercising in Estonia. Now, say if there were to be an invasion, and God forbid that were to happen, soldiers, pilots you name it, need to be prepared that they could be called up at a moment's notice and deployed to Estonia. And to be able to be effective once on the ground, they need to know the terrain, they need to understand how their forests work, how to work um, effectively with their Estonian counterparts. And so the troops that I spoke to at Tapper Camp, which is about an hour drive outside of Tallinn are taking it incredibly seriously. They are training hard and fast. They're working interoperably with the Marines, doing beach landings with pilots in Wildcat and Apache helicopters. Um, They are in the forest practicing trench warfare, which I find really interesting because you know, in very recent memory, we had Boris Johnson saying that trench warfare was a thing of the past and that we don't, we won't be seeing tanks rolling across fields in the future. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we've seen in Ukraine. So these kind of old school almost habits of training have really come back to the forefront of how troops are preparing to fight. And um, the message from both troops and Miss Callis was that they are... 100% prepared to take on a threat by Putin and more than that, that they'll win, that they're completely confident in their ability. And I also got to see the Challenger 2 tank, which has obviously become very sexy in, in, in the military world of late because it is what the UK gifted. We gave 14 of these tanks to Ukraine. A little bit of information about it, but it recently won an international tank competition in Latvia. Um, it beat the US main bow tank Abrams. It beat the Slovakians, the Spanish. Um, And that is really significant because it shows just what a brilliant piece of kit this is. And knowing that the Ukrainians have that tank in their arsenal is really excellent because it shows that they are just going from strength to strength in this war. Meanwhile, the Russian army is simply being depleted. And that's another thing that Miss Callis talked to me about, that despite the fact that the Russian army you know, treats its people like cannon fodder and has suffered so many losses. Its kit isn't very good. It hasn't won this war like it hoped to have done so by now. One mustn't become, her word was sleepy. She said that 
they can get their stuff back in order very quickly um, in the space of two weeks, basically. She is confident that the Russian army could get more people, get more kit and get back into the swing of things. And therefore, even if it looks like Ukraine is doing really well and really pummeling the Russians, we mustn't take our foot off the gas. If anything, we should keep on investing in defence and investing in the Ukrainians because the moment that Western allies do become complacent is is the moment that the Russians can jump and, and take control of the situation again. Thanks so much, Danielle. Can I just ask you one quick question? One of your dispatches has the headline, I parked my tank in someone's back garden and they didn't mind at all. And you were writing about the relationship between the locals and the the British troops on NATO exercise spring storm in Estonia. What did you make of of the relations between, between the locals and the NATO troops? Yes, I thought that was a really important quote to include because what it demonstrated was the willingness from Estonians for foreign troops to come into their land and exercise and demonstrate to them this is how we will protect you if Russia invades. It is a very real threat and a concern to them. Having lived under occupation, having had freedom taken from them, they know what it's like to lose it. And so many people, I mean, Kajakalis was telling me how her family were deported to Siberia, how, you know, she grew up behind the Iron Curtain. To her, she knows exactly what it's like to not have freedom in recent living memory. And that is a history so many Estonians will identify with. So they were really happy to see British, French, you know, a number of nation, NATO nations coming in and demonstrating exactly what a situation would look like if Russia did invade. So they had Challenger 2 tanks rolling down the street. They had Apache helicopters landing in their back gardens. They had soldiers parking up with their vehicles in their front garden. And there was no sense of what are you guys doing? You're you're disrupting our peace. If anything, they were welcoming it and showing a genuine curiosity, engaging with the soldiers and wanting to, you know, children were clambering on the tanks and learning all about them. That sense of willingness really demonstrates how they do perceive the threat of a Russian invasion as something that is, is a real potential situation that could happen. Genevieve Hollallen, can I come to you? You've been on the Telegraph's uh, Ukraine War live blog today. There have been quite a few stories from the diplomatic and political space, which are rather interesting. Can you talk us through them? Hi, David. Yes, there have been, as you say, a number of diplomatic developments across Europe and beyond concerning Russia and Ukraine in the last 24 hours or so. Let's begin um, in Belarus. So Russia and Belarus have signed a deal which would allow Russia to store tactical nuclear weapons on Belarusian territory. Um, This deal was signed to formalise the deployment of the tactical nuclear missiles, which was first announced in March by Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu said that the step was driven by what he described as an extremely sharp escalation of threats on the western borders of Russia and Belarus, according to Russian state news agency TASS. Mr Shoigu added that Moscow will retain control over the weapons and any decision on their use. He was also quoted by TASS as saying that 
Iskander M missiles, which can carry conventional or nuclear warheads, have been handed to the Belarusian armed forces, and some Su-25 aircraft, which have been converted for the possible use of nuclear weapons, are also in discussion in terms of being handed over. Mr Shoigu added that Belarusian servicemen had received what he said was the necessary training in Russian training centres. Now, Mr. Putin has said on several occasions since the invasion of Ukraine last year that Russia would be ready to use nuclear weapons if needed to defend its territorial integrity, as he puts it. And when Putin announced this in March, NATO said that it did not see any need to adjust its own nuclear posture, but added that the Russian president's nuclear rhetoric was dangerous and irresponsible. And then moving towards what's happening within Russia, this is the latest development in terms of relationships between Russia and Sweden. Russia has said that it would expel five Swedish diplomats in what it described as Sweden's confrontational course in relations with Russia. According to the Russian Foreign Ministry, the move was in response to the expulsion of five diplomatic staff of, from Sweden last month, which it called an openly hostile step. Uh, Sweden said that it expelled these five Russian diplomats over espionage concerns. In addition to this, Russia has announced that it would shut down Sweden's consulate in St. Petersburg and it will shut down also its own mission in Sweden's Gothenburg. Sweden announced its intention to join NATO last year following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Russian statement has said that ties between the two nations, this statement coming out following this news today, said that the ties between the two nations had reached an unprecedented low. Foreign Minister for Sweden Tobias Bilström said in a statement that the news was very regrettable and added further confirmation of the negative political development in Russia and the country's international isolation. He continued, Russia has chosen to expel Swedish diplomats who acted within the framework of the Vienna Convention and conducted customary diplomatic activities in Russia. We also deeply regret the Russian announcement about the consulate general in St. Petersburg. Diplomats from other countries, among which are Germany and Norway, um, have been expelled from Russia since the beginning of the war. And last month, the Finnish embassy in Moscow and its consulate in St. Petersburg had their bank accounts frozen. So this is just the latest in a string of diplomatic incidents surrounding consular presences in Russia. Thanks very much, Genevieve. Just a couple more stories, if that's all right. Let's leave Russia and Sweden and go to the Far East um, because there's been an incident between Russia and Japan as well. Yes, so this news from Japan came out this morning and it's the news that Japan had to scramble fighter jets on Thursday after what it described as Russian intelligence gathering aircraft were detected off its coasts along the Pacific Ocean and the Sea of Japan. Um, Japan's joint staff said in a statement that one Russian aircraft travelled from the north of the country down along part of its west coast, while another took a similar route along the opposite coast and returned the same way. This incident comes just days after Japan hosted Volodymyr Zelensky at the G7 in Hiroshima, uh, which was spoken about on the podcast. There was no further information provided about the incident, but we will be updating the live blog as and when we find out more on that. 
And just lastly, from me and from the diplomatic sphere, there's the news that e- the EU has ex- said that it will extend tariff suspension for imports from Ukraine for a further year after warding off an import ban on grain imposed by some EU member states. The Council of the EU said on Twitter today that EU ministers responsible for trade had agreed to an extension at a meeting on Thursday. The European Union lifted tariffs and other restrictions for Ukraine imports for an initial period of 12 months in June of last year. Poland and Hungary in April banned some Ukraine imports following complaints from farming groups about the suspension of all duties. Um, The two nations had to become transit routes for grain from Ukraine that could not be exported via the Black Sea. Until 2022, the EU had retained minimum prices for things such as fruit and vegetables and tariffs and quotas on other farm products such as meat, dairy, sugar and some cereals which apply to Ukraine. Um, Alongside Hungary and Poland, Bulgaria, Romania and Slovakia will bar domestic sales of certain grains while allowing for their transit to be exported elsewhere. In response to the announcement of this um, continued suspension, Mr Zelensky tweeted... I welcome today's decision of the EU Council to extend temporary trade liberalisation for Ukrainian products for another year. The full abolition of duties and quotas has been extended until June 2024. As we move towards the EU, this temporary liberalisation should become permanent without any exceptions or restrictions. I am grateful to all EU members for their support, which brings us closer to the EU accession. A busy day in the diplomatic space. Thank you so much, Genevieve, for talking us through those stories. It would be great to go to our guest, Dr. Sasha Dovzik. Sasha, it's really good to have you back on the podcast. Um, Really good to hear from you again. Would you just introduce yourself and your work again for our listeners? Of course. It's a privilege, actually, to be on Ukraine The Latest. It's my favourite Ukraine podcast, um, and I really appreciate your work. Um, I'm a lecturer in Ukrainian at the, at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, UCL, and I'm also a special projects curator uh, in the Ukrainian Institute London. But I also travel to Ukraine quite a lot, and my recent trip um, included a journey to the east of the country with Pan-Ukraine, uh, which is a literary organization. And in what is a typical move for Ukraine now. It's um, becoming this volunteers and activist organization, which occasionally uh, goes to frontline and deoccupied Ukrainian territories, bringing aid and also documenting Russia's war crimes. So in the end, in the end of April, I was um, on one of these trips and we went to the uh, Donetsk and Kharkiv regions, uh, quite close to the frontline um, quite close for civilians, I suppose, especially those who are usually based in London, like myself. Could you talk us through your trip? Um, Where did you go exactly? And what did you see? Well, we went to Kharkiv, um, uh, which is the second largest Ukrainian city, uh, just 30 kilometers away from the Russian border. Um, And uh, as uh, listeners would know, Kharkiv uh, was heavily shelled and uh, impacted by by Russia's uh, invasion since February 2022. So we went to the North Saltivka district, uh, where Russian um, troops were stationed just one kilometer away from civilian buildings. And those those buildings are no more. They they are basically 
uh, burnt out shells of buildings that used to be a quite uh, populated residential area. 30, uh, 300,000 people used to live there. Um, and now it's uh, basically a Silent Hill uh, story. Uh, from Kharkiv, we moved to Izum, uh, which was under Russian occupation. And from there, we moved to the Donetsk region, passing by villages, uh, Krasnopilia, Dolina, um, Luman. And these villages are basically erased. There is not a single house left undamaged uh, by Russia's invasion. It's uh, quite a heavy sight to take in. Um, from from there, we moved to Svetovirsk, which is this beautiful natural resort. Uh, it used to be a touristic place next to the Svetovirsk Lavra, an uh, old Orthodox uh, monastery, quite beautiful, um, situated on this uh, white chalk, white cliffs in the pine forest overlooking uh, uh, Donets River. Um, and that site has uh, also been damaged by the war. Um, like, basically, there is not a single town or or city or village in that part of the country uh, which has not been touched by, by Russia's invasion. Just a couple of more places, uh, Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, which you would know as they are quite close to, to the front line, quite, quite close to the heavy fighting. What did you talk about with the local residents there what what did they tell you what what was their view on on what had happened to them and to their region so uh, we were lucky to uh, meet the town head in Svetohirsk, for example who was this upbeat energetic person Volodymyr Rybak he was a fighter since 2014 and uh, then he was the head of the territorial defense of Svetohirsk. Uh, the the town was uh, occupied for three months. It was liberated by the Ukrainian army in September 2022. Uh, and uh, uh, this person became the town's head. So he is now in charge of uh, bringing the, the town back to life. Um, and, you know, when people live quite close to the border with this pure evil, basically, um, they, they are very clear-sighted. They have this... Uh, extraordinary clarity of vision and of mindset, uh, which which is quite remarkable. Um, and he uh, he brings basic services back to the town, like he brought post back to the town. He is in charge of uh, uh, resupplying the town with water. And you have to understand that the town is uh, burned, it's damaged. Uh, he showed us a local school, which... Uh, Russians hit uh, directly from a tank. From a tank, so he um, he insisted that the school was empty, and this was basically uh, Russia's war crime, as they knew pretty well what they were doing. There was absolutely no military um, purpose, uh, no military justification for for doing that. They just fired at a school because they could. Uh, there were like residential five-story buildings, uh, basically uh, bombed uh, with aviation bombs, and uh, seeing a building which is dissected in in two halves by an aviation bomb is is also quite a difficult thing. Uh, and most of uh, Svetohirsk looks like that. And nevertheless, uh, this uh, head of town is uh, bringing basic services back to people. He's organizing. Uh, field kitchen, which prepares like 500 uh, hot meals per day. 
uh, there is uh, there are like sweet things like a book crossing shelf. So he's um, uh, making sure that the cultural life uh, in the town is is also uh, coming back to life, so to speak. Um, and yeah, we were in touch with uh, librarians all over these um, eastern Ukrainian towns and and cities who whose libraries were also damaged by Russia and who managed under constant shelling, constant bombardments to save their collections. So these were librarians in Izum, for example, which suffered under, greatly under, under the Russian occupation. And there are these extraordinary women who, uh, instead of looking after their own safety, were looking after the safety and preservation of their books. They, they are all quite heroic to me. One of the issues that you had to deal with during this trip, as I understand it, was the threat of mines and the Russian soldiers having mined quite a lot of the area. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? What what did you have to deal with uh, and um, how did that work for you? So you uh, learn quite quickly to look under your feet uh, when you are in these places because uh, the entire region is heavily mined. Uh, these mines um, are... Um, quite small they they usually uh, are dispersed from air so from bombers um, they are called petals quite a poetic name lipistok in russian um, and they uh, bite into the ground and if it's high grass you will not notice it uh, it's anti-personnel landmines so it's designed uh, to uh, basically explode upon contact um, and it's uh, very dangerous and civilians have uh, suffered greatly from, from, from these mines. Um, when you are in these uh, places, you only can step on asphalt. You never go into the high grass. So basically uh, all the uh, areas uh, that are not like clearly visible, they are out of bounds. And uh, I must say that uh, about 30% of Ukrainian territory is now contaminated with explosives. It's not only these uh, banned uh, Russian anti-personnel landmines, but uh, it's also unexploded uh, missiles, unexploded shells, rockets, uh, which are contaminating soil, which uh, are contaminating Ukrainian waters and which are causing great damage, not only to the civilian population, but also to environment. Uh, this is turning into what has now been discussed as ecocide, um, a long-lasting damage to ecosystems in Ukraine. And you can witness the signs, the evidence of this ecocide all over the uh, liberated eastern Ukrainian areas. So you pass by fertile Ukrainian fields. As you know, Ukraine is a very um, fertile uh, has very fertile land, the black soil, Chornozem, which basically you, you, you stick a seed into it and the tree grows. Uh, it's, uh, it's very productive. So these, uh, these fields are now littered with carcasses of uh, military equipment, which is burned and which continues to contaminate the soil. Uh, the soil will not cleanse itself. It has to be removed. Um, so we, we are losing, um, quite rich, uh, natural resource. Uh, same same uh, thing goes on in in the forest, which uh, are burnt, destroyed, again littered 
with these unexploded missiles, land miles, land mines, um, uh, military equipment, uh, and where you basically uh, have to watch over each step. And this is not to mention that some of the forests, like the forest in Izum, um, have been turned into the mass burial sites, as you know, in this beautiful uh, pine forest in the Zoom Kharkiv region, uh, Russians buried uh, 450 Ukrainian civilians and prisoners of war. What used to be this beautiful forest, this beautiful natural resource, resource again, is now the site of grieving and the site which marks Russia's genocide of Ukrainians. Sasha, may may I ask, on this trip, did anything surprise you? Did any was anything different to how you expected it before you travelled? Yeah, thank you for this question. <laughs> Basically, I did not expect um, to see such a heavy impact. Um, when you when you read reports and uh, basically we all live online, you can imagine uh, how, de- how how much destruction Russia, Russia's invasion uh, has brought to Ukraine. But when you see it with your own eyes, the impact is quite visceral. And uh, I also come from uh, southeastern Ukraine, from Zaporizhia. Uh, it's more to the south of the country, so it's a quite flat stepland. And I expected the eastern, northern parts to look pretty much uh, like uh, the, the, the area where I come from. It was different. It was so diverse naturally. I did not expect such beauty and such biodiversity, which again has suffered such great losses. You wrote a very moving opinion piece for CNN where you described the Russian invasion as a sleepwalking necrophile. It's quite an image and quite a a metaphor. What what did you mean by that? (laughs) Thank you for this question. Well, basically, Russia has this zombie quality about it doesn't it? It uh, just invaded the, a foreign land, uh, met with a fierce resistance, lost more than 200,000 people in this brutal, unjustified invasion, and uh, which has not stopped it. Uh, so they keep pushing um, without counting their losses, without counting lives of people. Um, and wherever they go, the only thing that they saw is uh, death, basically. And after seeing all that with, with my own eyes, I, I don't have a different description for Russia. It has to wake up somehow. We, we must make it wake up. Sasha, is there anything we haven't talked about or spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Perhaps another issue, uh, another point on the ecocide issue uh, there are activists and environmentalists working all over Ukraine who are collecting evidence of this ecocide. There are currently uh, 15 cases with this definition in Ukrainian courts. As far as I know, they are waiting decision. And then we will uh, proceed to international courts. So uh, it will be a significant development for international law because Ukraine uh, will be the first country where the issue of ecocide will enter, you know, these uh, these legal definitions um, alongside such international uh, war crimes as uh, the crime of aggression, genocide, uh, perhaps um, 
the crime of ecocide will be added as a result of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Dr. Sasha Dovzik, thank you so much for joining us. It's really good to hear hear from you again. And thank you for talking about something, a trip which was an incredibly difficult one to undertake for you. Thank you so much. But can I come to Francis Dernley for your very final thoughts today? Well, thank you, David. I promised to return to the issue of the drone attack on the Kremlin. And an interesting story from the New York Times that is that US spy assessments show the drone attack was probably orchestrated, in their view, by one of Ukraine's special military or intelligence units. This assessment, based on intercepted Russian and Ukrainian communications, said that Ukrainian officials have said they believe that their country was responsible for the attack, with Russian communications indicating it's not some sort of false flag operation. Now, as we know, Moscow accused Ukraine of trying to kill Putin. And Zelensky promptly denied any Ukrainian involvement. But in this story, US officials have said they don't believe that Zelensky signed off on the covert operation or that he signs off on all the covert operations happening in the country at the time. And it also quotes officials saying that it's unclear to what extent the president is aware of such operations in advance. Now, off the back of this, Ukraine has said that it had nothing to do with the drone attack. It's actually responded directly to the New York Times report, which I think is revealing in and of itself. Uh, Mr. Podolyak, the advisor I spoke about earlier, has issued a statement where he said that, as I say, it would be strange and pointless for them to try and attack the Kremlin and that they deny it in the strongest possible terms. He said Russia is trying to reduce arms supplies to key by playing on Western fears of a possible escalation because of alleged Ukrainian attacks on Russian soil. Now, of course, he would say that and Russia would say its own perspective on that drone strike. It's really, really difficult to get to the bottom of this one. We've reported so many different perspectives on it on this podcast. Perhaps we will never know the full truth, or if we do, it will come many, many decades when the archives eventually open. And if so, I'll be the first in them. But either way, I think it's another example of a relatively minor incident in the grand scheme of things that has huge symbolic value for both sides. For Ukraine supporters, it was a blow against the Kremlin, whether they were responsible or not. For Kremlin supporters, it was a sign that they are right to argue that this is an existential war against their country and that Ukraine is made up of sort of Nazis and aggressors. The visual and metaphorical impact of this has far outweighed the physical one. And I think it just underlines how, in many ways, we often focus on these kind of incidents because of that, because they have that cut through, which perhaps other incidents for all of their horror, some of the egregious attacks that we've seen on Ukrainian cities, for instance, which have become so happening daily. And yet we, you know, the, the sort of the disappear into newspaper columns because we've become so used to them. And I suppose in a way, there's there's a real tragedy to that. I mean, as I say, this was an attack which really just scorched the top of the building, whilst dozens of people are often being killed every day by the strikes that we're seeing on Ukrainian settlements. So it's a very difficult one, this, because in a way, by the very fact that I'm ending my final thoughts on this by talking about the drone strike, I'm drawing attention to that rather than the attacks that in many ways are, are more important where people are losing their lives. But it's a reality that these kind of incidents get a cut through and a symbolic importance and a political importance that are not afforded to attacks that are more common 
and that we have seen taking place day after day in Ukraine. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. And it's something that, again, I think we have to be sensitive to, which is why we always on this podcast try to draw attention to the daily incidents that are taking place in Ukraine, which, as I emphasise every time, are war crimes. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, as our guest, Sasha, would you like the very final thought? Thank you for this opportunity. Well, uh, I would like just to return to this question of Russia's impunity, which is basically the, the cause of all evil. I think that this war should be Russia's last war, and it should definitely bring an end to uh, the unpunished crimes that Russia has been perpetrated for decades and maybe for centuries. So I would like to urge you and uh, listeners to keep an eye on the documentation of Russia's war crimes and to contribute to support uh, this effort because Ukrainian resources are limited, but we are very determined to persevere in this area and to make this war Russia's last war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.